Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club, and in this episode we're continuing our look at Dick's 1975 novel, Confessions of a Crap Artist. Uh, this was the only mainstream novel that Dick published during his, his lifetime, although he wrote many of them. They all came out, uh, I think they all came out now, or at least most of them came out, um, after, after he died, and they've been quite popular since. Um, now this is the only one of these particular novels that I've read before. But it really, I think, sums up what Dick was trying to get at in his mainstream novels, which was kind of a, a, a pretty scathing critique of, of middle-class suburban life um, in California. And we get a lot of that in the first five chapters, as we found out in the previous episode. Um, just to recap a little bit, we, we were introduced to our main character, Jackie Cedor, the crap artist, the titular crap artist. And we learn that he's very much interested in the occult and in weird conspiracy theories and things like that, UFO stuff. He was interested in the theory of Atlantis and all that stuff. Um, we learn about his background. We also learn about his sister, Faye, who ends up marrying this guy, Charlie Hume. And they have a very dysfunctional middle class life. She seems to marry him largely because uh, to provide for her as a, as a husband should uh, and provide a big house for Marion County. Um, they... They have an abusive relationship. Charlie often beats beats Faye, and we see one incident where that happened. Although they have a couple of kids by this point in the story, um, Jackie Sudor runs up into hard some hard, into some hard times and has to be taken in by Faye and, and Charlie. We also find out that they've they've been they've met this younger couple in their neighborhood, Nat and Gwenatiel, and that's where we left off last time. We're going to see the impact of the introduction of Nat and Gwen and Teal into their life. And we're going to find the impact of having Charlie move into their, their home, what impact that will have on their life. Um, and um, one thing I did talk about last time was the shifting point of view narration in, in the story. Um, being called Confessions of a Crap Artist, we think we can get a novel mostly from the first-person point of view of Jackie Cedar. In fact, most chapters aren't from his point of view. Most chapters, I think, are, are in third-person narration, but it's kind of a mix. you got some chapters from Faye's point of view, some chapters from a third-person narration, and some from from Jack's. Now the question is, is this all being written by Jack? Is Jack the ultimate narrator, but he puts himself in the head of these other characters? Or is Dick the one shifting the narration throughout it? I mean, if you just read the the Jackie Cedar chapters and break them out, it's not really a coherent narrative. Right? It doesn't even work as a memoir as it's trying to be. So I like to think of this as Jack jack trying to put himself into the head of these different characters but uh, you could read it however you want uh, so in this episode we're going to look at uh the the second quarter of this novel pretty much you know specifically chapters six through ten and this is going to mostly focus on the impact of, of nat and gwen's arrival into this into this little family so chapter six is is from faith's point of view and it's a first person narration from faith's point of view and um charlie who had just you know ran into this nat and gwen at the post office invites them over to to their house for for drinks or whatever and they come and he's bringing them along and and Faye's really interested in this couple uh they're young they're kind of they don't quite fit in entirely they, they pique her 
curiosity. Um, now Nat, we find out, is, is studying, he's working in real estate, in a real estate office, which is kind of a bougie job, but his main interest is academic, and he's, he's interested in law, but he's also pursuing his degree in history. Um, Faye, himself has, Faye herself has an interest in the humanities, and so she gets sort of drawn to Nat for that reason. Now, she's a bit of a faux intellectual. She's not a serious intellectual, but she's the kind of woman who, you know, is able to talk about different things when she, she can kind of cold read people. And when Nat said he was interested in, in history, she's like, well, I have this book on Roman history. And she was able to kind of maintain a conversation with them. Now, immediately, Charlie's being kind of uh, neglected in, in this, this new relationship. And, and if you kind of want to read it back into this novel, it might be that right away, Faye was thinking of Nat as a potential lover for herself, or at least kind of setting the groundwork for that. She is a very practical person and a bit of, um, she's the kind of person who would plan ahead for a backup husband early on if, you know, she felt she might need it. Now, after this original meeting, Faye calls her friend, I think her friend's name Ma, Mary, and they, she immediately begins to gossip about the Antilles and then this woman knows the Antilles and said, like, you said something that really offended Nat or he didn't have a good impression of you. And this really triggers Faye almost immediately. And so she hangs up calling her friend. And she calls Nat and confronts him over this over this perceived rudeness that that she's been accused of kind of, you know, in a distance. And kind of what's going on here is all that weird complexity of kind of gossip and slandering and, and people talking about each other behind each other's back in this suburban life. It's it's something that seems that, that makes Nat very uncomfortable, but it's something that Faye's already quite good at and quite um, adept at. So this is really a nice kind of humorous window into just the gossipy world of 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 suburban California. But um, later, Gwen actually comes. She comes as kind of to, to make a peace offering to to the Humes. So it seems Nat kind of sent her to, to make peace. And that's kind of the other side of it, right? You, you, in, the, in these kind of uh, suburban worlds, gossip is very powerful. Everyone talks about each other. Everyone knows what everyone's up to. Everyone knows who's sleeping with who. All that is kind of out in the air. But that also then requires you to really have this air as a friendship and community over on top of that. Because if you don't have that, you're going to become the victim of all that gossiping, right? If you have the good relations with everyone, you can kind of weather that a little bit better. And this is going to be a major theme of... of the middle part of this novel is just the power of gossip over over these characters. So that's what happens in chapter six. Mostly, it's dealing with the the, the introduction between Nat and and Faye, and it, it's not the most positive one, but it gets to the heart of the matter, which is just how careful one has to be with personal relationships in these in these suburban California communities. So chapter seven stays in first person narration, but we shift to Jack Isidore who is, of course, the, the brother, Faye's brother, who has recently moved in. And we didn't hear much about what he did since moving in, but this is really a very interesting chapter about gender and about gender relations and, and how they're perceived. So he arrives at the house and he moves in, and he actually likes it quite a lot. He plays with the kids a lot. He's kind of a good uncle. He really does well, well with them. Um, Faye's impression of ch child and ch of children is that they're kind of a burden and pressure and they're always there. And Jackie Cedar's point of view is that Faye's kind of an aloof mother 
and the, basically both of the humans are kind of aloof parents. And we've already seen this in the previous chapter. Charlie literally left his daughter in the car when he went to have a beer at, at a bar or a couple beers. So, but they they say, well, we're we're always taking care of the kids, so we're not we're not aloof as you say. You just are coming in as the uncle, thinking you you know you know what it's like to raise kids. But he actually starts to take over a lot of the job of parenting from the Humes. Things like he starts to cook dinners and do dishes and, and plays with the kids and, 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 you know, does all the kinds of things that, that parents normally do. Quote, after a week or so, I found I did not mind getting up early and setting the table, putting the water on for the cream of wheat, making the pan peanut butter jelly sandwiches and filling the thermos jugs with tomato soup, opening the drapes, frying bacon, cutting open the grapefruit, buttoning the girls' dresses, and then after I had served breakfast to them, clearing the table, washing the dishes, taking out the garbage and trash, and finally sleeping the floor on the breakfast table. Meanwhile, Charlie got shaved, dressed, ate a soft-boiled egg, toast, and coffee, and set off for Petaluma. At nine or so, Faye got up. Took a shower, dressed, carried a cup of coffee and a dish of applesauce out to the patio. Ate, read the Chronicle, if somebody had thought to go out and get for her. And then she sat by herself smoking a cigarette. So the the point here is pretty clear. It's that Jack is doing the traditional woman's work in these kind of households. And, you know, Charlie just continues his life pretty much unchanged. The chores are being done. The kids are being fed. But the burden of a lot of this parental duty has been shifted to to Jackie Cedar. He doesn't mind it, though. He, he seems to kind of actually relish in that. And if it, the point seems to be that they don't really want to be parents anyways. They, they have kids. And at one point, Faye says to Nat when they start to have their affairs, like, I would like to have kids with you, more kids. But that's hard to believe when we see how she actually deals with her own kids. It seems kids are just a status symbol for her. And the actual parenting is best done to someone else. You know, of course, a richer family would maybe have a maid or a nanny or something. They're not quite that rich to maybe pull that off. They, they do have a pretty expensive uh, living standard, though. Now, one reason he doesn't mind doing this is he sees it as his way of really helping around the house to pay his way, right? And he, he actually computes, and Jackie Cedar is the kind of guy who would compute this thing, and he gets out his notepad and figures out how much he saves him in babysitters and stuff. He actually figures out that he saves him money by having him live with them. It's something like $70 a week. He cuts off their budget. Seems like perhaps a lot, but they spend 12000 a year, is what Faye once says. So, um, if, if you didn't notice, reading that this is about gender, Charlie can basically tells us, or Vic tells us through Charlie, that this is about gender and being a good man, and, and, and basically Jack not being a proper man because of his role. And so Charlie goes into this rant with to Jack about, about gender housework and how he's not you know he says like doesn't it bother you to do housework i don't think a man should do these types of things and you know charlie basically doesn't seem that there's much problem doing this stuff and charlie responds a man has to keep his self-respect doing housework robs him of his masculinity and and charlie knows starts to notice a lot of hostility and, and snipping back and forth between charlie and Faye, and kind of the troublesome nature of their relationship um, and in fact, he starts to really understand the relationship a lot more. At first, he didn't really understand it. And now he seems to understand it a little bit more as really a commercial relationship, a relationship based on on the fact that Charlie can provide Faye this, this kind of bourgeois life. And that's really what she's in it for. And she's willing to put up with a lot of nonsense in order to sustain that. Quote, sometimes I wonder, or sometimes I ask myself what she was up to, if anything. I had... It, I had nothing to do in the early afternoons after I had done the lunch dishes. 
and I now and then sat around and watched her mold clay pots or knit or read. She seemed to be a good looking woman, although she had literal no bus line and she had this big modern house with 10 acres and all the rest of it. Beyond any doubt she was unhappy, but she wanted something she lacked. After a month or so I came to the conclusion that she simply wanted Charlie to be different from what he was. She had a deeply ingrained image of what a husband should be like. She was always very choosy, and although in some respects he met her requirements, in others he did not. For instance, he had enough money to build this house, and he always did most of the things she wanted, and he was reasonably good-looking. But for one thing, he was a slob, and there has always been an aristocratic, disapproving, judging tendency in Faye. It showed up strongly in high school when she began to work towards going to college. She took courses on literature and history, and felt that the girls who took cooking classes were the riffraff of the world. End quote. And there's a bit of contradiction here in that, that she wants to have this middle-class life, but she doesn't really want to be a bougie housewife. But we also know who is kind of maybe a better match for her, and it's Nat. Nat has that kind of intellectual strand, which is missing from, from Charlie. Charlie, at the end of the day, is, is, is very much, even though he's rich and owns a business, he's still very much a working-class guy. So that's pretty much it for Chapter 7. It's an important chapter, and it really gets to the gender politics of... of novel um, and it also gives us a deeper look at this relationship between these two core characters chapter eight shifts us back to third person narration um, and basically Faye and Charlie are bickering while flying a kite and they're just doing a normal middle-class thing flying a kite with the kids and they're bickering and then he has this heart attack um, that and that kind of ends the scene he wakes up he's in the hospital of course and when he wakes up, he just starts blaming his wife for driving him to have a heart attack. She, he thinks it's a big conspiracy that she's been engaged in, you know, trying to weaken his heart to kill him off. Which is kind of interesting because we do have Jack Isidor, who is the real conspiracy theorist in the family. But the implication here is that, you know, Faye's actually conspiring behind the scenes to kill off Charlie in any way she can. Um... Now, a lot of what's going on in this part of the novel is the feeling that, that the Antilles are replacing Charlie, or that even, I mean, Jack's not really replacing Charlie so much, because Jack's just taking, letting Faye not do, you know, those uh, kind of housewife jobs that, you know, she would have had to normally have done. But it's really Faye, or it's really um, Gwen and, and particularly Nat who seems to be kind of pushing Charlie out, like taking up more and more of Faye's time and being something that Charlie can't be. Uh, we get more of that here, and now it literally happens because when he's going to be spend much of the rest of the novel in this hospital bed rehabilitating from this heart attack, all the, the meanwhile, Nat and Gwen are going to visit. They're going to spend a lot of time at the house. They once in a while will visit the hospital see Charlie, but more and more they're going to be visiting Faye's home, putting more and more time there. Eventually, Nat's going to sleep with with Faye and, and, and replace Charlie physically. So, that's really what's happening in this part of the novel. But, he does straight up tell Nat in one of their conversations that he's going to kill his wife when he's able. He actually seems to know that, that, that Faye will start looking for another husband at this point, too. Warning Nat saying, I just wanted to warn you. She's an exciting person and people are drawn to her. I'm not saying anything against her. I love her. If I had to, I'd marry her again. No, he thought. If I could, I'd kill her. And I'd take her out of this bed and I'd kill her. He said aloud, God damn her. It's okay, Nat said, trying to make up stuff. No, he said. It's not okay. That bitch, that devouring bitch, she ate me up. When I get back there, I'm going to take her apart piece by piece. 
God, you know your original reaction to her. I heard. You told Betty Hines that Faye was a falsely demanding woman who didn't like her. So he's kind of made up his mind that he's going to take out <laughs> his frustration on, on Faye. And, and kind of this heart attack has has made everything crystal clear in his head that really it was Faye who broke him to this horrible state he's in. Chapter 9 stays in third-person uh, narration, but it gives us this closer look at the Antilles as Charlie kind of, as Charlie kind of moves to the back of the story because he's going to spend much of this part of the novel just in the hospital bed. I mean, it's like for months he's, he's recovering from this heart attack. It was a pretty severe one. Meanwhile, the Antilles are essentially, especially Nat, essentially moving into the, the king's home. We're spending more and more time with them. There is, though, a really big culture difference here, and these are the things that start to grate to, start to bother Nat quite a lot, and they start to grate in his, his mind as he spends time with them. It's just how wasteful Faye is. For instance, you know, how she'll make steaks, make too many steaks, and then just, like, feed them to the dogs, um, or throw them away rather than rather than save them and keep them in the refrigerator. Remember, Nat is a student. He doesn't have much money. He's, he's trying to save his way for college and all that and, and start his family. So that kind of wastefulness is something that really is a big part of this culture gap. You know. In this sense, the Antilles are not really part, fully part of this beautiful world that, that Faye's fully embraced them. Um, now, Faye, when she kind of gets this criticism from Nat, first subtly and then a little bit more overtly later on, she is pretty bitter about this and hostile. She says, like, what good are you doing? You know, you think you're so great, but you're not doing any good for the community. I am. You know, I have charity. I do these volunteer stuff. You know, again, it's it's kind of justifying her wasteful life by saying we're kind of building this, this ideal community, right? Of course, there's no broader social analysis here. And I think that's always a problem in suburban storytelling or maybe suburban life overall, right? right? You know, if someone spends a lot of time at the PTA, spends a lot of time building up, you know, nice parks and stuff and spending time with the kids, maybe doing a babysitting commune or something you know that's all good stuff and that all builds community certainly but in that kind of aloof bourgeois middle-class suburban life it's really aloof from the real problems core prob economic issues in the world right it's it's not really dealing with class struggle it's not really dealing with the, where power is in society you know they they might actually vote quite toxically perhaps you know support candidates who basically support the status quo or, or, or they vote for, you know, the, the candidate who's hard on crime, right? Because I want to have strong, safe communities. Kind of distant from what this really does to the urban, you know, the, the inner city or whatever. Or, you know, and Dick was right in this is the time when the urban crisis was becoming real, partially due to white flight to the suburbs. I don't know how much of this Dick was actually teasing at, but when I read this, I can't help but just see how kind of aloof someone like Faye is from actually the broader world out there. And she's from not from a rich background. She she did come from a more humble background. Jack Isidore, even though he's a conspiracy theorist and he's got weird ideas, ironically he's more in touch with actually that world. The world outside of, of the suburbs, that is. Now Faye starts to work on that. Despite this kind of culture gap, Faye starts to work on that trying to say, why don't you become more of my companion? Trying to work him up, get more of his company. And I was pretty clear Faye's trying to kind of work that in sexually and kind of physically into her household. And and Nat sort of questions her on the sex thing. You know, he's married to 
when, so he's not really an eligible bachelor. But she just turns this around on him immediately and says, no, 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 it was you who propositioned me, right? And you've had these conversations with people, I'm sure, where you confront them on something and they just turn it around and you, you're the bad guy, right? When maybe you're addressing some issue you have with them or some injustice you think has taken place, and they just turn around and, and somehow make it your own at the end of the day. Right? We know the kind of And Faith, what Faith is certainly one of those. Um, I don't know if you want to go as far as Charlie does, who Charlie calls her a sociopath, a psychopath, uh, later on. But nevertheless, there certainly does seem to be a, a, a quirk in her personality where she really can't take blame for the life she, she lives. But, you know, for some reason, though, Nat gets pulled into this life. Now, it may be hard for us to believe, but he sees something in, in Faye, and she, she doesn't get pulled into it. Um, now, chapter 10, the last chapter I'm going to look at in this episode, is we're back to first-person narration. We're back to the story from Jackie Seador's point of view. And we learned that Jack's been visiting Charlie quite a lot. In fact, while Nat and Gwen and, and Faye stop visiting Charlie, and, and Faye barely visits him at all, Jack's, Jack's still visiting Charlie, you know, his brother-in-law, giving him news and including news of Nat's presence. So essentially, Charlie knows that this affair between Nat and, and Faye has begun. He doesn't really care. He's kind of indifferent to, to Faye by this point. But he is learning about this, this affair. And Charlie... Uh, now, Jackie Sear is confused when he finds out how indifferent Charlie is to the affair. Um, his idea is that, confronted with data, there should be kind of a logical, rational reaction to that, and that rational reaction to learning that your wife's having an affair should be anger or hostility or some action. And the fact that Charlie doesn't care is something that really Jack can't compute in his more scientific mind. Now, he goes back to the Hume's home where he's living, and he gets a knock on the door, and this is when he's introduced to Mrs. Hambro. This is Hambro, someone who's introduced just in conversations earlier in the novel, but we finally meet her, and she is the head of this UFO cult in the, in the neighborhood. Now, I went back to read the de description of, of, of Miss Hambro, because later on, Faye's going to have a freak out about Nat meeting her, thinking that you know she's hotter than, than Faye is. But here's the description. In some respects, the woman seemed to be breathtakingly beautiful, but at the same time, I was aware that something was wrong with her proportions. Her head was slightly too large for her shoulders, although it may have been an illusion due to her heavy black hair. And her chest was somewhat concave, actually hollow, not like a woman's chest at all. And her hips were too small in proportion to her shoulders. And then, in order, her legs were too short for her hips, and her feet were too small for her legs, so she resembled an inverted pyramid. It came to me that although this woman was in her 30s, she had the figure of a somewhat underweight but good-looking 14-year-old girl. Her body had not matured, only her face. She did not develop beyond a certain point, and this top-heavy effect was not an illusion. If you notice only her face, she seemed authentically ravishingly beautiful, but if, you gaze, if your gaze took in all of her, you were conscious that there was something wrong with her, something fundamentally out of proportion. Her voice had a rasping, husky quality, very low-pitched. Like her eyes, it had a strong and intense authority to it, and I found myself unable to break free from her gaze. Um, that's part of the description of her, and it goes on a little bit more than that. But that's the thing. There's something a little bit odd about her. her. Um, but it, it kind of draws in people. And, and so I guess that's something you need in a cult organizer, a cult leader, is someone with that strong personality that can attract people and get people interested and want to hear more. But we, we hear all about her, her very bizarre cult as she basically makes her sales pitch to... to um, Jackie Sidor, and he immediately falls for it. Of course, jumping into it. 
Now, after Miss Hambrough leaves, Faye warns Jack that, that this Miss Hambrough is kind of a local nut. And it's at this point that Jackie Sudor notices that Nat had stayed the night. And I think this, I don't know if this is the first time he definitely slept with, with Faye. We don't get that really point of view narrative that says when that happened. Um, but certainly sometime in this period, he starts sleeping with Faye. Um, but Nat stayed the night and Faye denies that there was an affair. But, um, but it's obviously something's going on here. Um, we get a little bit more on the masculinity and chores issue with Jack. And I think here is one of the moments that Faye, although she's basically exploiting Jack so she doesn't have to do housework, she starts to accuse him of not being fully a man because of that. And this is, again, something Faye does all the time. She, she turns around the conversation on to the people she's, 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 she feels she's being attacked by. Um, so um, that's what's going on in this. That, that's the impact of of Nat's arrival and Charlie's arrival to to the story. First, Jack seems to replace Faye's job role as a housewife, and Nat eventually replaces Charlie's role as the lover, the romantic partner of, of Faye. So a couple switcheroos take place in this part of the novel. It's all very, very well done and very interesting. And for a novel that's just about an odd brother living with his sister and finding out his sister is having an affair, it's a pretty captivating the other big thing that we're introduced to here is Mrs. Hambro and the UFO cult, which will play a bigger role in the second half of the novel. So if you're reading along, um, next episode we'll look at chapters 11 through, through 15. Um, but for now, if you have any of your own thoughts about Confessions of a Crap Artist, is there anything I didn't talk about? Is there anything I, I went over too quickly that you think deserves more respect and analysis? Please let me know. You can leave a comment below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. So that'll be it for now. I'll see you next time when we look at part three of my my review of Confessions of a Crap Artist by Michael Pickett. To feel these changes have-